0: Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist, Bruce Dormini, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, the search for planets beyond the solar system, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to Episode 16 of Cosmic Controversy. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to welcome renowned astrophysicist, and radio astronomer Duncan Lorimer. Currently an associate dean at West Virginia University in Morgantown. Originally from the UK, Lorimer received his PhD from the University of Manchester in Northern England. A former postdoctoral research fellow at both the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy in Bonn, Germany, and at Cornell University in New York, Lorimer is both a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society and the American Physical Society. Along with his wife, astrophysicist Mara McLaughlin, Lorimer helped establish WVU's Center for Gravitational Waves and Cosmology. Among his notable research achievements are his many contributions to our understanding of pulsars and the discovery of fast radio bursts, or FRBs, which he and student David Narkovic first found in archived pulsar data. Although we now have a relatively thorough understanding of radio pulsars, FRBs are arguably the most perplexing phenomena that the professional radio astronomy community has encountered in a generation or more. And that's the topic of our discussion today. Lorimer joins us from West Virginia. Duncan, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thank you, Bruce. It's great to be here. First off please define for the listener what is meant by the term radio astronomer everyone has an idea of, of an optical astronomer or a visual astronomer or people who use their binoculars in the backyard but what does a radio how would you actually define someone who calls themselves a the professional radio astronomer
1: yeah it's an interesting question um, with a an optical astronomer as you say they're, they're using binoculars or a telescope or anything that Interact the light that interacts with their eyes, um, and that's um, as as I think all your listeners are aware. The optical light is just one part of a big uh, electromagnetic spectrum uh, of radiation uh, from from low energies uh, all the way up to high energies. And the low energy part of the spectrum uh, that's where the radio waves lie, um, and low energies correspond to long wavelengths, and the, the high energies uh, where the gamma rays are at short, the shortest wavelengths, and so the radio part uh, down at the low energy um, is where is the uh, the type of uh, electromagnetic waves that we study. And so we don't we can't use an optical telescope to detect those uh, those radio waves. Uh, instead, we have to use large uh, dishes that reflect the radio waves uh, into receivers. And what we end up doing is we we collect. Um, really voltages from the sky the uh, the electromagnetic signals from the dish hit the receivers and they excite electrons in the circuit there and, and we we detect um, the radio waves that way uh, so it's quite a different process and you end up actually looking at the universe in a completely different way
0: and uh, radio astronomy only developed after World War two were actually was it uh, concurrent with World War two I mean I, I originally mentioned mm-hmm. that you were from the UK and you got your doctorate right. at the University of Manchester, which is home to the Jodrell Bank Observatory, which I mm-hmm. believe got its start uh, during World War II as a radar research station.
1: That's right. It was, uh, it was an outpost of the university after the, the war effort ended. A lot of the, the folks that were involved in radar detection during during World War II We're looking for other applications uh, of the technology that they developed, and right around that time, um, there there were the initial, you know, so-called peacetime developments of radio astronomy. Karl Jansky was doing this from his backyard in Illinois, and so the um, the people um, that were, you know, getting back to their regular lives after the after the war were joining research labs and universities and Bernard Lovell was the founder of the, the Jodrell Bank Observatory which is uh, where as you mentioned where I I studied for many years so you know around the 1930s Carl Jansky in Illinois was developing uh, radio astronomy from his backyard in Illinois he, he built a radio dish uh, and he was looking for celestial emissions from beyond the earth he uh, he was able to detect radio waves from the sun and the uh, the milky way galaxy and the people that were coming back from World War II and joining universities uh, and research laboratories um, with armed with um, the new uh, the new technology that they were developing in the war for, for radar, you know, wanted to expand on this, and they they realized that they were they were physicists at heart and engineers, and they wanted to explore the universe in this new way. So, radio astronomy really got its uh, its birth. Uh, in the UK, um, through places like the Jodrell Bank Observatory, which is near Manchester in the northwest, and um, that's a that's an outpost of the University of Manchester, and um, it was one of two main centres uh, of radio astronomy in the UK, and the other one being uh, in Cambridge. And so those two uh, those two places in the U- UK were were instrumental in starting radio astronomy, and there were other efforts around the the world as well, and notably in Australia uh and in here in the u.s and currently you were in west virginia which is uh, not far
0: from the green bank observatory the famed green bank observatory in the u.s which is one of the most uh, uh, famous uh, of all the radio observatories inside the continental u.s why why west virginia for the listener just tell them why the powers that be right. picked west virginia uh.
1: Yeah, so so you know, Green Bank Observatory was a, a big draw for me, and that's what um, brought me to West Virginia. You know, I'm calling in from Morgantown, uh, which is about a hundred hundred miles northwest of the the Green Bank Telescope. The telescope itself lies at the National Radio uh, Astronomy Observatory, uh, which has been in existence since the 1950s, and it is it sits in uh, what's called the the U.S. Radio Quiet Zone, the National Radio Quiet Zone, um, and it's about a hundred square, hundred miles on a side, centred around the, um, southern West Virginia. It includes the observatory and the um, uh, the near- nearby listening post at um, Sugar Grove. And what is and this uh,
0: Radio Quiet Zone
1: for radio astronomers? The big pollutant. You know, rather than stray light from street lamps, um, as as it would be for optical astronomers, our big pollutant is uh, radio emissions uh, that are terrestrial in origin. And so anything from um, badly suppressed motors or or electric fences, anything that can create an electrical impulse will create an uh, electromagnetic signal and then... It- Create a radio pulse in many cases, which is detectable by these these very sensitive dishes. So the radio quiet zone was designed to, in such a way, to minimise that. Uh, it was firstly, it's in a very remote area. I you know I live in a remote state, and it's, it's about the most remote uh, part of the state of West Virginia. It's in an elevated valley, and so that the valley itself protects the shields, the the, the telescopes at the observatory from uh, you know nearby. Um, emissions um, such as you know, from airport radar and radio stations. but there, there's basically a ban on any type of radio transmitter uh, within the, the radio quiet zone. So as you drive to the observatory your first thing you notice is that the FM band will cut out uh, and you, you can only receive AM radio, which is outside the, uh, the band of interest. Okay. Uh, for the radio telescopes, uh, and so yeah, it's very tightly controlled, and um, they've to this day uh, they've done a very good job with that, and keeping it uh, in uh, such pristine conditions, uh, you know, as it were. And it's it's the only site like it in the U.S., and and really one of the few in the world actually that's that's controlled in such a way. So it's a very unique spot for us.
0: That's am- that's qu- absolutely amazing. So uh, how is the um uh, the signal processing different in the radio than in the optical, as opposed to the, or the optical or visual spectrum. So in other words, how do the radio astronomers process the emissions from a celestial source in a way that they can, mm-hmm. can make sense of it because everyone can look through a telescope mm-hmm. and see right. Jupiter or Saturn or craters on the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the uh, person who's not familiar with the, the whole, uh, Gamut of the <laughs> electromagnetic spectrum. That that is the mo- probably the most puzz- one of the most puzzling things to to the layperson how you actually make sense of these signals uh, to to be able to analyze right. and characterize these signals so that you can actually yeah. do science with it.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of people think that uh, we're actually listening um, to for signals <laughs> and you know, and they and they make you know they really make an analogy with uh, with sound waves, but it's that. As I kind of alluded to earlier, we're we're, uh, detecting voltages from the sky, Um, and so the the radio waves that are coming from these you know distant objects they will excite literally excite uh, electrons in an in an electrical circuit um, that is connected to the radio telescope, Uh, and that will create uh, a voltage that we can measure. Uh, and so we're looking for, uh, you know, rather than getting a, a direct image from a single dish, you get basically a, just a, a fluctuating voltage. And so you you and your listeners have probably seen those uh, those pen chart recording, pen chart recorders, as they're called. Right. Uh, and they are, and it'd be worth, you know, anyone that hasn't, not familiar with them, you know, looking them up on the Internet, but they're, they're basically a strip of paper uh, and there's there is a pen that is essentially attached to a voltmeter and so it jiggles around uh, as it as it is receiving these fluctuated voltage, fluctuating voltages uh, and as the paper moves underneath the pen it the, the pen will trace out the uh, the radio signal uh, that you're getting from an object and so as you as you as the telescope moves onto the the object of interest, the, you know, the signal will rise and the pen will move upwards uh, and then it'll, it'll fall as, as it moves away. And so you, you begin to catalog the radio sources that way. Uh, that's a very crude way of doing it. Uh, and nowadays, what we do is we we use um, digital technology to sample these voltages extremely rapidly. So we'll get a readout from the telescope uh, every hundred microseconds. So uh, we get we get incredibly high time resolution snapshots of the radio sky. So it's and
0: what is uh, a, That's the and what is a microsecond? Go ahead. What is a microsecond?
1: Yeah. So right. So one microsecond is one millionth of a second. Okay. And so in that's this incredible. case, you've got um, you know about every ten. A hundred thousand of these every second, something like that.
0: And a millisecond um, is simply a a thousandth of a second. Is that correct?
1: It is one thousandth of a second, right? So, yeah, that's right. So there's, uh, it's about point 0.1 milliseconds. If you want to think about it like that.
0: Okay. So what um, is uh, what is the most difficult thing about radio astronomy as opposed to optical astronomy, in your view?
1: Well, you know, it's it's quite easy to get into actually, because you know, once you go to a telescope and you see this pen chart recorder, you're immediately kind of, you 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 get this aha moment of, of realizing what's happening. And we bring, you know, school groups into the observatory. We actually engage high school students with our research. It's quite easy to get into. It becomes a little bit more difficult when you start to actually, when you want to really make images of the radio sky. So, you know, pick, get pictures of what you could see if you're, you know, your eyes were sensitive to radio waves, and you know, get high-resolution images in the same way that we get high-resolution um, optical images, you know, from the Hubble Telescope or something like that. So that's that's a pro- that's a rather complicated process that has been developed by the, this group of engineers that I alluded to over the years. You know, the the digital engineers they they developed this um, this process known as aperture synthesis. Um, it sounds rather complicated. But in in essence, it's it's connecting um, signals from multiple radio antennas uh, that are all looking at the same source at the same time. And what it ends up doing is it is you're able to combine the voltages uh, and mathematically manipulate them in such a way that you can form an image on the sky. And so you can you can get these very high resolution uh, images that you're seeing with uh, with telescopes elsewhere in the spectrums and that's quite a detailed process you know it's it's been worked out it's it took a long time for that to be uh uh, developed over the years but now it's it's kind of a plug and play thing and and you can um get an observation with any of these radio arrays and you know an image can come back a few hours later but it's that's quite difficult to um um to get into but it's you know in principle it's I, i think of it as um It's quite an accessible part of astronomy, even though it's rather obscure. Um, It's not as hard as people might think.
0: But unlike uh, optical astronomy, radio astronomers have much greater latitude about when you can actually observe. I mean, you're not constrained by uh, the day and night cycles, are you?
1: Not really, no. It's it's a blessing and a curse. We can observe 24 hours a day, uh, (laughs) even when it's raining. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we can observe. That's you know that's why we have a telescope just outside of Manchester you know, at Jodrell Bank, and it's able to observe um, just about any any type of conditions. It, it typically when you get a lightning storm, um, that's just going to create so much interference that we stop observing. But for the types of radio waves that we look at, they have um, they have wavelengths that are. 20 centimeters. That's our that's our that's our characteristic wavelength that we that we look at, and 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 radio waves that are that are that long can basically pass unimpeded through just about anything, uh, through the clouds and the atmosphere. So. By and large, we are immune to the weather. As you start to look at shorter and shorter wavelengths in radio astronomy, you go to five centimetre and you know, centimetre wavelengths, uh, you, st- you have to start to worry about the atmosphere and, and the, the weather itself. But um, for the sort of stuff that I do, it, yeah, we can observe all the time. Sometimes you would like to get a bit more sleep. You know, there's, there's always, <laughs> the telescope is always available.
0: So uh, let's switch gears and, and go back uh, to the 60s. In late nineteen sixty seven Jocelyn Bell Burnell, along with her thesis advisor Anthony Hewish at the University of Cambridge, detected the first pulsars using a student built radio telescope made up of two thousand dipole antennas and um she was actually looking for well actually not looking but she was using uh interstellar scintillation to to somehow characterize quasars uh Which are active galaxies at cosmological distances. But she also found pulsars. First of all, let's give a, since I brought it up, let's give a parenthetical definition of what interstellar scintillation actually is.
1: Yes. So there's a couple of like nuances here. So in general, scintillation is the twinkling um, effect that you observe uh, when you go out and look at. the night sky with your unaided eye, uh, you'll see that the stars will twinkle, uh, and that's you know that's an effect that's caused by uh, changes in the atmosphere as as the light is passing through the near but the Earth's atmosphere. With radio waves, there are there are actually multiple types of scintillation uh, caused by different media. Uh, one is the um, the ionized medium, so so free electrons basically floating around the solar system, and that's called interplanetary scintillation. That's actually what they were uh, um, really trying to study. We, as radio astronomers, we actually look at um, interstellar, uh, the interstellar scintillation through the uh, through the, the medium of our galaxy. And also we can look at, <laughs> even on really large scales, through the ionized medium in the space between galaxies. So it, it acts on many different scales, and it's a, it's a whole research area in its own right. But it's, at its heart, it's just... Just think, make that analogy with the twinkling of uh, of starlight, and you'll have the uh, you'll have the concept.
0: And she was uh, amazingly was I mean I remember interviewing her for my book, and I read you know history of, of how how this actually came about, and she was actually using a very low budget you know literally tit- dipole uh, uh, telescope. Out in a field somewhere, <laughs> if I re- mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, I, don- I think no one even really believed it was going to work, and it did work. What uh, first grabbed her attention as something anomalous in her data was that uh, she literally was w- was looking through pen rolls of, of what you were just explaining earlier, mm-hmm. and found uh, kind of a scruff is what she what she termed yep. scruff interference from the same part of the sky in her paper using this, this dipole telescope. Can you explain a little bit about what what was the scruff that she actu- actually was seeing on the pinroll?
1: Yes, right. It, it's it, The telescope sadly no longer exists, but if you want to um, get a picture in your mind, basically think about um, a bunch of poles in a field with, with wires strung out on it like a washing line, uh, and they were all connected together to make this giant circuit, and they were... Uh, when when you when you combined all of the the signals together, you you basically had a telescope that was looking straight up uh, overhead, and it was watching the sky as the Earth rotated. And so this this telescope was um, was collecting signals, basically uh, the whole all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, and it could be rot- rotated slightly so that it looked at different um, swaths of the sky. But so she. She ended up covering the, the northern sky uh, multiple times during the course of this experiment. So she, the same piece of sky would 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 pass through the telescope's field of view many many times, and sh- and so she noticed that there were these signals that were coming at the same time, uh, in the uh, in these miles and miles of pin chart re- recordings that she had, um, and it was you know really a remarkable achievement on her part to discriminate those with the, uh, the the pieces of scruff that were just coming at random times. They were, they were you know, Again, it goes back to this notion of radio interference. There would be electric fences in nearby farms and they would be badly suppressed and they, they would emit pulses that the telescope would see. And so she was able to discriminate between um, these different, uh, you know, what was actually a celestial signal, um, but it looked a lot like um, just interference or, or scruff as she called it. Uh, and so it was really her diligence that that picked up that it was coming from that same part in the sky, and she she ended up finding three three different sources. And
0: um, and the, the, so remember. the scruff interference. I mean, literally, she she saw that by. I don't know if that was hyperbole or you were you literally meant miles and miles of of uh, paper. It's streams. several
1: miles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean
0: that. Mm-hmm. Litera- so so the dumb question is, how do you get that uh, much paper? <laughs> to, to be able to take the data, I mean, how do you keep that? How do you keep enough paper on hand to be able to record the data? That seems like a stupid question, but you know, something to consider. yeah,
1: yeah, you know, just one of those crazy things you could do in the 60s, I guess.
0: <laughs> and and were they using what would be known as computer paper back in you know the the perforated paper that uh, that you yeah, that's in?
1: right. It had the, had those little perforations on the edges, and it was basically graph paper in the middle.
0: Okay, so whoever supplied her paper was, was in the money for quite a while, I guess. Uh, uh,
1: yeah, I guess, I guess that's <laughs> right. You know, it's like the equivalent of buying discs these days. Um, I, I guess the, you know, ultimately the price of paper went down uh, insufficiently that they could carry out the experiment. That's a pa- good point.
0: Yeah, okay. So um, as I noted in my book, uh, Distant Wonders, she found that the scruff seemed to pulse every one and a third seconds like clockwork, and she mm-hmm. soon found a second source, and by Christmas of nineteen sixty-seven, Belle Burnell and her thesis advisor Anthony Hewish were so flummoxed by these bizarre signals that they at first thought they were artificial, and dubbed the two LGM one and LGM two for Little Green Men one and Little Green Men two. And before you mm-hmm. comment on that, let's tell the listener where exactly. I mean, these are low frequency. I mean, so we're on the radio spectrum, wouldn't they? Compared to what we,
1: yeah, know. this this is in the actually in the FM band, which you know the listeners would be most familiar with. It was about 80 megahertz, so it's right in where FM radio is these days.
0: So 80 megahertz, uh, just uh, at the lower end of the mm-hmm. spectrum. So they went through this whole uh, kind of uh, quandary about you know are these really alien signals, and if they are, you know how do we broach this with the powers that be and and, uh, you know, how do you verify it? Because this was really SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which we're going to talk about later on, mm-hmm. was really in its infancy. I think Hewish mentions that he contacted the, uh, the Royal Society to let them know about their detection before they had interpreted it. But uh, then they eventually determined they were a new class of object, which had never been seen before, or never been characterized, mm-hmm. known as pulsars, uh, spinning neutron mm-hmm. stars that give off radio signals at precisely fixed intervals. Is that is that a pretty good definition?
1: That's a pretty good definition, yeah. Pulsars are like, you know, you can think of them as cosmic lighthouses, and so as they rotate, the the beam of, of radio waves uh, will pass your line of sight and you'll get these pulses at very regular times, yeah.
0: And so what is a neutron star? Uh, where do they come from? Right. How, how are they formed? And then why would they spin up to such extreme rotational mm-hmm. energies and and start emitting these these uh, signals.
1: Right. So, yeah, neutron stars are formed uh, in supernova explosions. So when a massive star that's several times the mass of our sun reaches the end of its life, uh, it will no longer be stable. It runs out of nuclear fuel to support itself, basically. Um, and it will collapse. Gravity wins and the star collapses. And so you see these... Um, these the end states of these objects. They're they're called supernova remnants. Uh, and there's uh, when you look at them now in in the astronomical catalogues, you see this expanding shell of gas uh, in the in the optical sky. Um, and what's what's happened is that the the star has has collapsed to, to such a point where the inner core of the star has reached nuclear density um, and. The, um, the electrons and protons get squeezed together so much that they form neutrons, and the, the very inner core of the star, the, the, the inner sort of few kilometers, up to about 10 kilometers, turns into essentially a ball of neutrons, and that ball of neutrons is now stable. It can it can stave off any further gravitational collapse, provided that the star is not too massive. Um, in any case, the it will rebound its outer layers off into space, um, and that's what you see today. And you know when you look at these catalogs, these supernova remnants, and so that the the new the, this this ball, this this collapsed core, is known as a neutron star, and um, it has two amazing properties uh, associated with it. So um, so one one is it has an incredibly high rate of spin, as you as you mentioned, um, the pulsars have very you know they. The periods of between pulses are, are about a second in some cases or even less in as we know now. And they get those spins um, through you know what physicists call conservation of angular momentum. And you can picture that best when you if you visualize a, a skater doing a pirouette on the ice. And as they bring in their arms and legs doing the pirouette, they they, they their rotation spins up, they change their moment of inertia, and that allows them to. Uh, to increase their spins. And that's what happens to these uh, these neutron stars. They initially start, they're initially spinning, like the sun is spinning once a month on its axis, something like that. Um, During the collapse, you can produce these stars that spin actually several hundred times a second in extreme cases. Um, So you get these enormously, enormously high spin rates. Um, And the second property is that they have a huge magnetic field um, so the Earth we think of as a bar magnet, the north and south magnetic pole, and the, the Sun as well. You know, it's a very simplified picture, but that's you know gets across the message, and that so the stars like the Sun are magnetized quite weakly, but they you know they they, they have you know a sufficient amount of magnetic energy. But as the um, as the star collapses, that, that those magnetic field lines that are that are associated with this the star. Actually, get squeezed together to produce a very intense uh, magnetic uh, beam uh, that is attached to these neutron stars. Uh, and so, the, the the fields that are associated with the the neutron stars after all of this collapses proceeded or ensued are something like um, let's see, a, a thousand billion, about about one trillion times the Earth's um, magnetic field. So they have this enormous amount of. Ma- uh, magnetized energy as well as the energy in their rotation.
0: And, and so, and you actually wrote yeah. in, in a recent paper in nature that the pulses detected on earth, what we perceive as pulses with our radio telescopes are caused by the rotation of the magnetic field, which you just described, mm-hmm. which, uh, sweeps across our line of
1: sight in much the same way as a lighthouse. Is that mm, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. The, the magnetic field is, uh, is able to, to, to um, basically strip off charged particles that are still on the surface of that neutron star and it, and, it, and it causes them to accelerate along this beam and then they radiate actually all across the electromagnetic spectrum. Neutron stars are one of the few objects that radiate all from radio waves all the way up to gamma rays. Uh, it just so happens that they 're most readily detectable in radio, but yeah they 're really just like lighthouses if you get that picture of a, a spinning beam in your mind 's eye that's that 's pretty much what they are
0: and uh, just to be clear we our star our sun is a a yellow dwarf a g dwarf and mm-hmm. uh, the the progenitors of these neutron stars that you mentioned which undergo the core collapse supernovae mm-hmm. Uh, are basically are they ob and a the 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 hot blue and white stars right. that's right okay which are which are huge uh, stars and very short li- lived and mm-hmm. um, right. i guess the nearest example uh, to find some of those would be in the orion nebula mm-hmm. which uh, yep. you can see in, you. in the constellation of orion uh, just below the belt of orion if i mm-hmm. or the sword of yep. uh, So the interesting thing is the whole point of this discussion is the fast radio bursts. And we're finally going to get Mm -hmm. to that. But I wanted to give the listener a background on on what was going on with the pulsar so they could better understand the FRBs. And um, the first radio bursts that you and David discovered, your student David, discovered was found in Mm -hmm. archival pulsar data. Uh, that you both uh, found in 2007 in archives of observations made actually in July of 2001 at Australia's Mm 64-meter Parks Radio Telescope. Is that right? That's right, yep. Okay, and so it was actually dubbed uh, the Lorimer Burst FRB-0104724, and it was the first known FRB detected. The big question is how did you and... Ah, uh, David Narkovic, first come across these anomalous radio emissions.
1: Yeah, it's it's really is a an interesting story. Back in 2006, my wife and I moved to West Virginia. Uh, she is also an astronomer, and so we started out um, as new hires in the Department of Physics, as it was called then, in uh, WVU, West Virginia University. Uh, and like all new professors, you're you know really expected to. To engage students in research and, and get going quickly. So um, what we did was we started looking around for data sets that had already been collected you know, by previous experiments, um, where you know, in our opinion, there, there's more, still more work to be done. Um, but you didn't have to go through the process of collecting the data, uh, which can take several months or years in some cases. So we were able to obtain some, this archival data that were originally taken, as you mentioned in. 2001. What we realized from the from the publication of that work was um, that the data had only been searched in a very specific way. Um, so I should be more, I should give more away about you know what what they were looking at in 2001. They were looking at the Magellanic Clouds, uh, our nearest neighbor galaxies to the Milky Way, as satellite galaxies to the Milky Way. The, there are two of them: the large and the small Magellanic Clouds, and they are two of the only external galaxies that we currently know that host pulsars. So we, we, we've we been talking a little bit about pulsars. We now know of about 3,000 pulsars, and most of those pulsars are in our galaxy, the Milky Way. But there are some that are bright enough to be seen in these nearby uh, external galaxies, the, the, the Magellanic clouds in this case. And so we noticed that the um, the Magellanic that, that, that experiment had, had been searched for pulsars, but not for individual pulses. Um, so uh, we realized that there was an opportunity to look for bright uh, individual pulses that would have been missed by those uh, earlier experiments. And the reason that's, that's interesting is because it is very well known to pulsar astronomers that there are some, some of these, these pulsars that will occasionally emit a pulse that's actually a 1,000 or even greater many, many times the the average um, intensity. So these, what, what are called giant pulses. So we got really excited by that idea and we, we thought, well, it would, would be really interesting to find some giant pulses in the Magellanic Cloud. So that's what David and I uh, started doing. Uh, we We got a copy of the data and we were able to, you know, process it relatively quickly. As I mentioned, radio astronomy is quite easy for people to get into. And so really within a, Two or three months, you know, David, who was, you know, just a an undergraduate starting out, was able to, um, you know, understand the the concepts and, and was able to apply some software that we developed, and the uh, the original pulse that we found just just came through that uh, that that process. About it was it was in early two thousand and seven, about three or four months after we started working on it, he found this absolutely insanely bright pulse uh, in the data uh, that's something that we'd never seen before. So it was very much another kind of Jocelyn Bell moment where, they, you know, we we, we were confronted with this event that, that we really weren't expecting.
0: And by radio, you mean radio bright?
1: Uh, uh, yes, bright, okay. bright too in radio waves. Yeah.
0: Okay. So uh, as I wrote in Forbes, uh, FRBs, as they're now called, are thought to be caused by Extreme events in the universe collapses, explosions or collisions. although, as we're gonna mention briefly later on, there are some ideas that they could be even of extraterrestrial alien origin. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, uh, by some advanced civilization that's using these uh, these strong pulses for some reason we're, and we're gonna we're gonna mention that. but that's not the that's not the the paradigm at this point, correct?
1: Right, yeah, we're definitely thinking some sort of celestial origin. So anyway,
0: um, suggestions about their origin mostly include the coalescence of two neutron stars, a uh, mm-hmm. core-collapse supernova, which uh, uh, we've also discussed, and the most distant appears to hail from halfway across the universe, uh, some eight, uh, some 7 to 8 billion light-years away, and the closest is now thought to be in a spiral galaxy, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, some 500 million light years away. Uh, do we know of any within the Milky Way?
1: Well, it's funny you should ask that. We, we do. The, um, this, um, this past spring, uh, an incredibly bright pulse, and actually a, a series of pulses, was detected by um, a very small uh, antenna uh, in California. Um, and that turns out to be what we think the closest known FRB and it's, it's actually associated with a, with a previously known astronomical source called a magnetar. And magnetars are highly magnetized. You know, I talked about neutron stars as, as having high magnetic fields. These are really highly magnetized neutron stars. So they're, they're, their magnetic field is even greater than the average neutron star. So much so that it actually powers kind of like solar flare analogs. In the radio, these you know, so we what what they were seeing were these giant radio flares that really were were very consistent with the the the, the FRBs that we've been seeing over the past uh, decade, but just really in our in our own backyard. Its distance is something like let's say a few kiloparsecs, a few thousand parsecs, and so one parsec. Uh, is about three light years. So it's probably about ten, five or 10,000 light years away, let's say something in that in that sort of ballpark.
0: You, you wrote in the journal, this is fascinating, you wrote in the journal Nature, that the uh, promise of detecting pulses from energetic sources inspired a number of searches over the years and, uh, following Hawking, Stephen Hawking's prediction in 1974 that black holes formed early in the universe's history would actually be evaporating. And then uh, astronomer Martin Rees suggested them as a potential population of sources emitting bright radial pulses. Uh, So do you think that any of these uh, FRBs are caused by uh, evaporating black holes way back in time?
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting theory. Um, The... um the, those, their so called primordial black holes. So, as you mentioned, they were formed early in the universe's history. They had about the mass of the Earth when they were formed. Uh, and through this process that Hawking predicted, um, they would be ending their lives uh, at the current epoch in the universe 14 billion years since it started. So, yeah, it's it's a currently an open question as to whether any of the um, and right now there I should say that there are about hundred FRBs that are known uh, to the to the astronomical community. So any so it's it's an open question as to whether any of those hundred uh, are actually coming from evaporating black holes. I think it's most likely, um, given that um, about you know, almost almost ten now have been associated with um, distant galaxies. That they're coming from a different type of phenomenon. Um, the, the evaporating black holes. I wouldn't expect those to be associated with with galaxies at all. They'd just be sort of objects orphaned in space, so to speak.
0: But would an evaporating black hole cause a such a a, a pulse? I mean, it's such a, a burst of energy. I mean, how would that
1: happen? Oh, it's it's yeah, it's it's an it's entirely plausible uh, from an energetics perspective. You know, you would get you would get this very short duration pulse. That was would actually be going across the electromagnetic spectrum. So if we can get observations, you know, where radio telescopes are working with other telescopes across the spectrum to look for these things, um, we we will learn more about this. And you know, we we could end up in a few years' time, you know, having you know good evidence in favor of those. But you know, right now they're 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 kind of on the fringe as far as the the FRB theories go.
0: And what uh, what would you? I mean, how would you define a an evaporating black hole. <laughs> <Because> that's a, <laughs> yeah, that's a there's, Jeopardy I mean, question. There's probably right? a
1: whole it's probably a whole podcast in and of itself. <laughs> but you know, in a, in, you know the the, the the genius of Hawking, I think. You know, his um, you know he came up with many breakthroughs throughout the uh, his career. But you know, it, in a nutshell, what he realized was you know that the black holes they have this event horizon. Um, your listeners are probably familiar with where that you know it's the point of no return you know if you're if you're beyond the event horizon then you can't escape the black hole whereas if you're just outside the event horizon you are free to leave um, so to speak now Hawking realized that um, they're right now in in the room where I am and the room where you are and you know all through space, particles are actually coming into and out of existence through a, a quantum mechanical process um, known as vacuum fluctuations. Um, so particles are, are simultaneously being created, and then they're recombining. Uh, so, you know, just very briefly, they're, they're, they're borrowing energy, if you like, from the vacuum of space. Uh, and then they, they're, they're unstable. Then they unstable, then they recombine, and they give that energy back to the vacuum. Um, but what Hawking uh, realized was, well, what happens if if those two particles got created, but then before they could recombine, one of them was on the other side of the event horizon and, and the other one would manage to escape. And, and what what would it essentially happen is that to an observer like you and me, it would look like that the black hole has emitted a particle. And in order to um, for the universe not to violate conservation of energy, Something has to balance the book, so to speak. So the, 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 the particle that leaves becomes a real particle. It's carrying away energy. And that energy has, has now, the, the debt of that energy, if you like, has to be paid by the black hole. So the black hole loses a bit of its mass in the process and gets a little bit smaller. Uh, and so that, the idea is that these um, black holes that were formed at the beginning of time could could have through this process gotten rid of so many of these particles such that they had no mass left, and so they would they would essentially just end their life with this um, electromagnetic pulse that you know goes across the, the whole spectrum.
0: And conservation of energy, uh, could you give us like a brief parenthetical definition?
1: The the basic idea is that energy, all the energy in the universe, is here right now. You can't you can't create it. Uh, you can't create new energy. All you can do is transfer energy from one form to another. that's like that's a kind of a classical way of, of thinking about it. you know in, in sort of a Newton's idea of the universe. you know energy can neither be created uh, or destroyed. But you know when quantum mechanics came along and, and, and the you know the, the understanding of, of that was many of these classical ideas were really thrown out of the window and and you got you basically said, well, you know when you look at the universe on very small scales, there's actually no such thing as zero uh, amount of energy. there's there's all there's always these like quantum mechanical fluctuations, so-called quantum foam. It, it, there's there's no sort of absence of absolute zero in terms of energy. And so that's where these um, these particles are coming from, those 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 tiny fluctuations.
0: Let's go back to the issue at hand because you are an observational radio astronomer, and are you still? I, you mentioned uh, before the b- before the taping a couple of days ago in a phone call that we that you mm-hmm. were actually were doing observations at Green Bank uh, looking for FRBs, or am I wrong about that?
1: No, that's you're right. Um, so we have on the Green Bank telescope, the, the hundred meter dish um, that's at the observatory. Uh, we have an experiment that we call Green Burst, and what it does, it it collects um, data from the the receiver in the telescope, and it, it makes a copy of it and passes it to a, a you know, a, a set of computers that we've got sitting in the, at the observatory, and we analyze those signals 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, and we search for fast radio bursts in real time. So we use um, GPU cards, graphics processing units that you can find in gaming machines, um, to. To enable us to to process this enormous amount of data um, so, such that we can detect pulses in real time. But we get so many um, false positive signals um, as a result of this process. We get so many pulses that are actually just coming from sources of interference, even though it's in this radio quiet zone, there are still problems with that. And so it's it really hard to keep up with all of the all of the events that are coming through this this real-time system. So what we've had to do, and it's been really fun, uh, my students have really taken the lead on this, is, is to develop um, an artificial intelligence kind of back end that, that looks at these uh, looks at the output from this experiment and it classifies the pulses coming through. Uh, and so it, it's, uh, it, it gives us just a very small subset of the things that it actually thinks are FRBs. So we've trained it to look for FRBs. Um, so that yeah, that experiment's going on right now, and so we're uh, uh, we haven't found anything yet because the telescope has such a small field of view. But we're we're confident that we can uh, we can make some small contribution to this area.
0: And uh, that and is experiment. and that is really the uh, AI is really the future of computational analysis and uh, across across all of astronomy. And you you think back at in uh, mm-hmm. 1967 and and how. Uh, Bill Burnell and Hewish uh, were able to make their uh, detection of the pulsars, uh, literally by looking at at uh, at pen and ink data. Mm-hmm. And and today, what you and your students are doing on a hundred meter telescope, state of the art with probably the probably incredible uh, computational software, digital software that can do every sort of analysis known to man. Uh, it it's amazing. I mean, what's at uh, fifty or sixty years a... Uh, yeah,
1: that's right. Less than less than fifty, less than sixty years. It's uh, it's the the field has transformed. Um, you know, I think you make a really good point that data science, um, you know, which encompasses you know analysis of large data sets and artificial intelligence, that really is now the mainstay of astronomy, uh, astrophysics, but also all of the the physical sciences and you know any other type of research, social sciences, even the humanities. It's just a huge um tool that we're now really just getting to grips with so yeah for astronomers uh, artificial intelligence is is the you know the word on the street right now we're we're just using it in any type of uh, application that we can it's it's making our lives a lot easier and it's allowing us to do things that we couldn't have done a few years ago
0: so let's look at the uh the the kind of the most controversial aspect of the frbs and And the FRBs have gotten a lot of headlines. I don't want to pick on anybody, but uh, a lot of kind of uh, uh, sensational headlines. I would say, alluding to the fact that they could be of artificial origin—in other words, uh, space aliens. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) And and, uh, so, how? uh, But you say, well, even even if they aren't of artificial origins, you uh, have colleagues uh, who are in the SETI community. We're very interested in mm-hmm. the FRBs because they, uh, that they're seen in energies that one would expect uh, from an artificial emission. How so?
1: The types of signals that we see, uh, what we call broadband, they're, they're, when, we, when we tune our radio uh, telescope, we, we actually receive a whole range of frequencies, you know, like, like tuning a radio dial when you're looking for a, a radio station. We're sensitive to to a wide range of frequencies at once. Uh, over, you know, depending on the experiment, it can be 100 megahertz, let's say. So we, we're collecting all of those radio waves at once, uh, which is quite neat. But for a for a SETI signal from S- extraterrestrials, they're they're probably expecting just a narrow band signal, just something that's only in part of that band. Just really because it's hard, it, you know, for even an, a really advanced civilization to. To generate a broadband signal because that just requires a lot of energy and resources. And so our colleagues in the SETI community are using really the same technology that we are. They divide the the, the radio spectrum up into channels like we do uh, and they look at individual free radio frequencies uh, and they look for these narrowband signals. And so we uh, we're in regular communication. We have you know, giant experiments, the, the Greenburst experiment that I mentioned, that was done in collaboration with our colleagues at Berkeley, um, and they, they helped develop the hardware for us. Um, so it's, it's a very complementary uh, uh, approach in terms of instrumentation.
0: As I noted in Forbes a few years back, two Harvard researchers, Lingham and Loeb, even posited that FRBs might be leakage from planet-sized transmitters powering interstellar probes in distant galaxies they noted that the amount of power involved would be sufficient to push a payload of a million tons or about 20 times the largest cruise ships on earth. Yet such a burst would only appear as a brief radio burst because of the sail and its power source in its movement relative to earth.
1: Well, you know, I, I would say straight off that I have tremendous respect for Avi Loeb. I know him quite well. He's a Harvard um, professor, very, uh, well, esteemed around the world in in the astrophysics community, you know, and they're just making the point here that, you know, energetics wise, um, the signals that we are receiving from these fast radio bursts, they're, you know, OK, to us as radio astronomers, they're actually look like they are, they're bright sources for, you know, by our standards. But when you when you put it into, you know, when you think about, step back a second, radio waves, as I mentioned right at the beginning, are low energy Part of the electromagnetic spectrum, so the amount of energy that's involved in this process is not, you know, ginormous. It's not like uh, something like a, a supernova explosion, which is one of the most energetic objects, or a, a uh, crashing of two neutron stars together. It's only just a tiny fraction of that that you actually need um, to to generate something that would look like a fast radio burst. So you know, they're being speculative, you know, and I think that's a, it's a good thing. Because you know, in, in the, the scientific method, it's important to, have to get as many theories into the mix that are viable um, and um, you know can be discussed. This one is, is tricky because it's hard; it doesn't make you know real concrete predictions, and you have to would have to sort of to dig down into it. So it, again, like the evaporating black holes, it's it, it's it's even further out in the fringe in my mind, but it's energetically consistent with what what we're seeing. And, I, you know, I think it, 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 it deserves a discussion, let's say, at this point. But, I, you know, I think given the evidence that we have right now where we're seeing FRBs associated with galaxies we, you know, and we, we can make um, assertions with objects that we already know, you know, I, it's, it's unlikely to be uh, the cause of, um, any of any of what we're seeing right now.
0: And uh, in your own mind, uh, what, is the, what, is, what is your own personal best hypothesis whether or not you came up came came up with it or not i mean what do you personally think uh
1: yeah yeah is the cause Um, of these i mean you know i'm like many all scientists really i'm a big fan of occam's razor trying to get the simplest possible explanation for something um i like to uh take something that i already know and see if i can adapt it to fit the situation um, so you know, as as you set up this um, this interview, we've we've been talking about pulsars. We know a lot about pulsars. We've spent fifty years studying them. Uh, we know a lot about their energetics, and and we're understanding uh, how they generate these pulses to some level at least. Uh, and as I as I mentioned earlier on, we know that pulsars can generate pulses that are thousands of times the mean. It's not really much of a stretch to if you wait long enough. Um, to actually, for some of these pulsars, they they could they could emit a pulse that's even more intense than a thousand times the mean it could be, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of thousand, millions of uh, millions of times the mean. Um, but it just gets rarer and rarer the brighter the pulse is. So, if but the universe is a big place and it, there's a lot of time to to sit around and wait. Uh, and so the idea is that FRBs could be. Um, a giant pulse-emitting neutron stars at cosmological distances. That's one nice one. Uh, another one is um, coalescing neutron stars, and I think you mentioned that. Uh, and as I mentioned just now, that, that 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 releases an enormous amount of energy, and you would only need a tiny fraction of that to actually be converted into radio waves um, to... Um, to explain what we're seeing most of the energy from from um, neutron stars gets transmitted away through gravitational waves which again is a whole other kind of worms but that it's an it's a source that we know exists uh in the universe and so it's something that i think you can hang on to the final one which is getting a lot of traction uh and we've talked about the sources a little bit uh, is that there they are pulses from these highly magnetized neutron stars known as magnetars and you know that the you know as we mentioned earlier on, there's kind of this really tantalizing story of this nearby magnetar that is emitting FRB-like pulses very sporadically. So I think the magnetars have a big role to play. Um, I will say before I stop uh, ranting on here that it's it's entirely possible that there are multiple classes of FRBs. We know. In gamma-ray bursts, for instance, in the, in the gamma-ray sky, completely different story, but there are two populations of gamma-ray bursts, some coming from supernovae and some coming from the collapse of, uh, sorry, the um, the coalescence of, of neutron stars. There could very well be multiple classes of FRBs because we see some of the FRBs that actually repeat and some so far have, have not repeated. So... Those are some of my best guesses. Um, you know, there's, I think the next five five years or so, we'll have a really clear, a much clearer picture than we do now. But we're already getting close, I think.
0: Is there any evidence that the FRBs produce an optical component?
1: Um, not so far. Um, so the only um, uh, non-radio component that has been um, put forward so far is this galactic magnetar, which you can see in X-rays and gamma rays. The, in optical, it's really interesting because um, the, the giant pulses from some of the pulsars that we know about in the Milky Way do actually emit optical pulses. They're, they're bright enough to emit optical pulses. The problem is we just haven't quite integrated the radio and the optical surveys to a level where they can simultaneously look at a large swath of the sky and, and do a meaningful, meaningful search for these FOBs. That's, that's all about to change, though, with an experiment in South Africa called Meerkat uh, and Meerlicht, which is a, a joint radio and optical survey that's uh, about to start uh, and will look for exactly what you're uh, asking about, the optical flashes that might be occurring. We just don't know right now. And uh, in addition
0: to the Green Bank and other, uh, uh, and Parks and other more conventional radio uh, observatories, we also have a new observatory in Canada, the CHIME, and then the Murchison Wide Field Array in Australia. Uh, but you seem to be most excited about uh, a precursor of the Square Kilometer Array project uh, in Australia, known as the Australian Square Kilometer Array Pathfinder project. And you say, Right. That uh, it's finding a lot of FRBs or doing interesting work.
1: ASCAP is is something that really is grabbing people's attention in, in the FRB world. It is an array of radio dishes um, in in the west in Western Australia, um, and it is collecting data at in the in this twenty one centimeter band that we've talked about. Um, so it's a it's above FM, but it's it's in a, it's in a more sort of classical radio astronomy band. And so far, they've discovered about three dozen FRBs, something like that, they were one of the first experiments to really have a wide field of view on the sky. So most of the experiments prior to this, and you know, this is prior to, say, 2016, they were carried out with facilities um, such as Green Bank down the road and, and parks as well that had relatively small um, instantaneous coverage of the sky. So they just re- weren't really seeing the FRBs at a decent rate. Um whereas ASCAP and also CHIME have just opened up the sky and so they're seeing FRBs in much larger numbers. What is really neat about ASCAP right now and what actually makes it unique among all the telescopes is its ability to, to localize the bursts on the sky. So it is is it's an example of one of these interferometers that I, that I talked about right at the beginning of the interview using this aperture synthesis technique.
0: And an interferometer and it's able- is 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 simply linking. Several different uh, antenna.
1: Yeah, uh, right. Okay. The, so the dishes get combined together, and in effect, they synthesize a, a dish that's actually as large as the separation between the dishes themselves. So it's synthesizing this ginormous radio telescope with exquisite resolving power. And so th- th- it's been responsible for most of the localizations so far, where you know, where we've been able to see to say, okay, the FLB comes from that galaxy. And, and actually that part of the spiral arm of the galaxy, it's really being able to pinpoint them on the sky for us. Okay. So that's really a, you know, it's a game changing experiment right now, but chime also is doing amazing things.
0: So we're coming to the end of the podcast. I just have like uh, two or three more questions uh, before I let okay. you go. Um, and I guess the, the two, two things that are kind of uh, come to mind, what's needed in terms of funding or data analysis uh, to solve the FRB mystery that isn't already being done? And then the, the second part of the question, what uh, should the radio astronomy community in general be doing that they haven't been doing uh, on any part of their research, not just the mm-hmm. FRBs?
1: Yeah, I mean, funding-wise, you know, we're really at the mercy of, you know, across the world, whatever the um, the federal government is putting into science. And so, the more money that goes into science, you know, not just astronomy, but you know, all across the the disciplines, the more these breakthroughs, the, the more rapidly these breakthroughs will be made. Um, it's it's really as simple as that. Um, we're we're basically at this point resource limited. We've we have, we, we have the technology to, to create these incredibly powerful radio telescopes. We're able to analyze the data uh, in close to real time, uh, you know, enable these sophisticated uh, artificial intelligence systems on them, uh, and deploy all this wonderful um, technology. But we can't support the the personnel to that will really push it through. You know, it's 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 people that we need to to write the papers and you know curate the data. And so, it's it's really just a, a cash flow problem. You know, it's it's proceeding. Don't get me wrong. We're we're making progress, but you know, you could you could only imagine you know how how more rapidly it could it could take place with more resources.
0: And uh, finally, what drew you to radio astronomy?
1: Well, um, that was um, really a means to an end, I would say. You know, when I was, uh, I've always been interested in astronomy. You know, just, just like anyone, I was, I was drawn to that, you know, you know the, just, just this sense of wonderment of thinking about endless space and endless time and these amazing objects and black holes. So I've always been fascinated and I went to, to college and, and studied, you know, astrophysics, but I didn't really know what I was going to do until I was getting close to graduating and I found out about these neutron stars. And yeah. I was just, once I found about those, I thought, that's what I've got to study. And, you know, that, those are really, you know, they're, they're pressing all my buttons and, you know, I want to, I want to find out how more about those. And so I, you know, at that point I was, you know, 20 years old or something and um, really had no idea uh, about radio astronomy, you know, <laughs> it's, we've talked a little bit about it being obscure, but it, you know, back then it was really obscure. And, um, I, 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 had just no concept of what it was. And so, you know, I asked my advisor at the time, how can I study these pulsars? And he said, well, you need to go to Drudrell bank and you need to l- <laughs> learn to be a radio astronomer. So that's what I did. And, you know, I've, I've never regretted it ever since.
0: And so, um, if you happen to be at uh, green bank alone, uh, walking out, I don't know if you, if you, if you, if you do that on a regular basis, uh, uh, maybe you're early evening or night and you have a moment to look up at the sky, uh, Mm -hmm. think about those neutron stars or any celestial target that you're interested in. Um, what goes through your head?
1: Yeah, it's just a really nice way to, to kind of reset yourself, you know, as a, professional astronomer we you know we spend our working lives too much of them really you know staring at computer screens and you know you're 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 engaged in calculations and you you kind of forget the sense of scale so it's a way to reconnect with all of that some of my you know best memories i i really don't get to green bank I don't have much time to get to Green Bank at that time of night anymore. But when I was a student, I used to go to parks a lot to observe. And I spent months down there and I had the great privilege of being at the observatory alone for many nights. You know, once you pass your training, you're allowed to be there with this giant telescope. It's just you and this telescope. And so you can step outside and watch the telescope tracking the current source. And you just... It's just a mind-blowing experience, and and you know, being out there in Australia, it's just so, so remote, and you know, it's it's just so incredibly peaceful. You, you you just feel like you're totally connected with the rest of the universe at that moment.
0: And so, you were actually out there as a student, in the middle of yep. almost nothing, uh, maybe surrounded yep. by kangaroos, uh, no watchmen. Yeah, no, that's no, right.
1: No, that's about it. Yeah, it's just sort of rural west. Uh, uh, so I'm here in rural West Virginia. That this was rural New, New South Wales. Wow!
0: <laughs> I mean, that, that that must have been e- e- a bit eerie at times.
1: It was, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah, and know, yeah, especially with the the telescope being there as well. You've just got this gigantic mechanical structure that is moving, and it makes this really eerie noises. And it's, Yeah, it's <laughs> it, it's one of one of the one of my most cherished memories, just being there. And uh, unfortunately, it's very hard to get get there these days because all of the, the observing we do is over the internet you know and then that's great because you don't have to to spend all these resources traveling there but you do you know lose some of that a lot of that i would say
0: right okay so and, and i guess uh, the other thing is you step outside uh, you're inside in the control room in a in a telescope like inside a telescope like parks a radio telescope uh, mm-hmm. a dish you step outside then and, and you look up and uh, no matter what time of day, let's say it's early evening, and and you just make that connection that good gosh, you know I'm in here alone. There's uh, there's not another living soul for maybe what a uh, you know 50 miles or something. Right, and, right. And uh, I'm taking real time data of some strange astrophysical event, li- literally millions, if not billions, of light years away. I mean that just must blow your mind.
1: It does, and and I think you know, my my father used to tell me a little bit that um, you know, youth is wasted on the young, and I, I don't think I appreciated it as, at the time as much as I should have done. I, I I do I do remember it very fondly, but I I would do anything to get back there right now. <laughs> it was just. It was just a, the. It was a simpler time, and you know, again, you're just at one with uh, what you're studying, and then you and and the sense of wonderment, you know, that you you had when you were a kid returns. It's just, yeah, it's a it's just a beautiful uh, experience.
0: Duncan, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media?
1: I do. Um, I I have a Twitter account. I think you can find me at at Duncan Lorimer, um, where I. I tweet about the research at uh, West Virginia University. Uh, you can also follow me on Facebook.
0: As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Duncan Lorimer, thank you so much, and let's hope that uh, you and colleagues will soon solve this FRB mystery.
1: Well, thank you very much, Bruce. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormini. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormini, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear
1: skies. Music provided by RFM.